There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more. So when they needed us, we could fight the battles that they never could. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of Thor, Love and Thunder. What a classic Thor adventure. Part of Now Playing's Avengers and Marvel Comics movie series. The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Hosted by Arnie. He was no ordinary man. He was a god. Jacob. I'm gonna kill this guy. And Stuart. The greatest team ever. What are you prepared to do? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews that span the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. You still don't know when to give up, do you? I can do this all day. But be warned. This episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and mildly objectionable language. And guru. Whoa! Language! Listener discretion is advised. Gentlemen, you're up. We hope you enjoy the show. Showtime, a-holes! Today we're discussing... Thor, Love and Thunder, starring Chris Hemsworth, Christian Bale, Tessa Thompson, Jamie Alexander, Taika Waititi, with Russell Crowe, and Natalie Portman. Featuring the Guardians of the Galaxy, Chris Pratt, Karen Gillan, Dave Bautista, I'm sorry, it's now David Bautista, Palm Clementif, Sean Gunn, featuring Vin Diesel as the voice of Groot, and Bradley Cooper as the voice of Rocket. I mean... <laughs> I don't know if this even features the Guardians. You're wasting a lot of breath. Mm-hmm. I don't remember them in this movie. This is the now playing co-host who's always invited to the orgy, Mike Patton. Mike Patton of Faith No More? Yeah, I no longer go by Arnie. I've taken the name of my favorite singer. I'm now Mike Patton. Ah, okay. Well, this is Stuart. And this is the host who once loved a wolf woman on a woman wolf, Jacob. So we are back with the Marvel Cinematic Universe in theaters. It doesn't feel that long since Doctor Strange. I did read one review of this movie, only one, and it did say it was the best MCU movie in theaters since Doctor Strange. <laughs> Funny. Yeah, and back to Thor, which I had to go and revisit. You know, I've been shitting on the original Thor movie as the very worst of the, what, now 29 installments. So wrong. I had to be sure. I had to go back. Yeah, I don't think it is. It is the messiest. I can say that that first one, tonally speaking, goes from dark Shakespearean to Marvel lore to fish-out-of-water comedy in very head-spinning ways. It is not a well-directed or edited film. But, I mean, after Shang-Chi, no, it's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) That's your new bottom? Oh, yeah, that one is so awful to me. It's the only one I would actually call awful. 
Worth pointing out, Marvel, we may get angry. You know, we sometimes come in grumbling, terrible, this, that. They rarely are terrible. MCU has a quality control. All four Thor movies are going to stay far above what comic book movies were before there was an MCU. Like, there's a standard, and Thor is on the lower end. So is Thor 2. But I had more appreciation for what Chris Hemsworth does in the part. He is a lot of fun in all the movies, and I always hope the storylines are going to be better for him than they are. For me, Thor 2 remains as the second worst Marvel film, with only the Eternals below it. But, let's face it, I mean, I liked the first Thor, but Thor was redeemed when Taika Waititi stepped behind the camera and decided, let's make Asgardians of the Galaxy, and brought that kind of humor and that kind of rock aesthetic with Led Zeppelin playing as Thor was kicking ass, much like we'd have the Guardians dancing around to music. So, trailers... There almost were no trailers for this. This holds a record for the shortest time between trailer and release date for an MCU film. But I was so excited for this because I knew Taika was back. And it didn't even matter that I knew it was announced at Comic-Con in 2019 that Natalie Portman was returning. I mean, she may be my least favorite actress of the MCU because of her non-performance in those first two Thor films. But in Taika, I trust. <laughs> she wasn't good. I feel like it took Taika to get her back. Like, that was someone that reinvigorated her. No, it's not Taika that brought her back. It's being able to play the title role. She's not the girlfriend anymore. Which Taika wrote this, so it was Taika that brought her back. Taika that gave her that opportunity. Would anybody enjoy playing Jane Foster? I mean, be fair to her. That was a shit part. <laughs> I mean, is it any worse than Pepper Potts? Gwyneth made that character fun. There's something about the repartee of that first Iron Man movie that was far above any Thor movie. So, yes, I think she struggled to see a reason why she needed to do those. And now they've given her a reason. That is the selling point of this movie. It's the only thing I knew coming back in was that Thor would have competition, reunite with his ex, and battle for the hammer. I mean, I know this was Taika, so he did great with the last Thor film, enjoyed the episodes of The Mandalorian that he's directed, Jojo Rabbit was a lot of fun. I was already good going into this. The fact that Natalie Portman was returning, I'm like, well, we got a director that could probably work with her. What excited me, though, was the bad guy. We got Christian Bale coming on as Gore the God Butcher. I did not know anything about this. I think I saw a trailer real late, maybe like a week ago, with him. He doesn't really look like himself. No, he look. he's back in machinist mode where he's lost a ton of weight. I didn't recognize him, but I was excited when I heard he was in the cast. I feel like he's really able to get lost in a role because I forgot it was him while watching this. And in the David O. Russell trailer before this, it barely looks like him, too. He's really able to Lon Chaney himself out of being Christian Bale these days. But, you know, I found it hard to believe he was in it. It was a casting announcement. I heard he was filming it. But I'm like, I can't imagine him returning to comic book movies. Why would he do this? He did the Batman trilogy. He was done. He said he did this because of his kids really wanted him to do this yeah one feature that i saw on youtube it's all about the kids we got taika's kids in this christian bale's kids are going to be in this hemsworth kids are in here as thor at one point all the kids are invited to this one Let's not forget Disney owns Marvel. I mean, let's face it, they're getting older. It's the time when all these people are having kids, and so parentage is on their mind. When Taika goes to write a script, I would imagine that's, that's what calls to him. 
I mean, Jojo Rabbit was from the perspective of the child, so it doesn't necessarily mean that he's getting softer. It just means that they have to think about a child audience as Hemsworth is... Well, I think he's over 40, but he's looking like he's in the best shape of his life. He's 38, and Portman is 41. I did have to look that up. I knew she was in her 40s, but I had no idea how old Chris Hemsworth was. He is the most ripped he's ever been for this, according to his trainer. He's like 250 pounds of muscle, eating eight meals a day while filming. Yeah. At any rate, yes, there's reasons to be excited, even though Thor is not one of my favorite wings of the Marvel Universe. Even that third movie, you guys are high on it, but I still say they spend way too much time in the Jeff Goldblum world and not enough on Ragnarok. Oh, they needed to spend more time there. Jeff Goldblum was cut from this film. I'm so sad. I would have loved to have seen that, as was Peter Dinklage. Apparently, Christian Bale filmed scenes with both of them, neither of which are in this film. Was he going to be the giant dwarf again? Yeah, probably giving up some information about Stormbreaker and how Stormbreaker can call the Bifrost or something, but I'm sure it was a functional scene, but it would have been nice to see him again. But how did you guys see this? I went full out IMAX 3D, and I gotta say, I did the same thing for Doctor Strange 2, and at least there were those scenes with debris floating in space that were kind of like 3D and cool. I never noticed anything. At all, ever in this movie in 3D. Those goat tongues didn't come out at you like they were going (laughs) to lick you? Nothing. It was so not necessary. There was one shot that I'm sure was good in 3D. When the hammer is flying, the very first time we see Mjolnir as formed as a hammer, it's flying right towards the screen, POV Thor, and then he reaches out for it and flies away. I had to think that that hammer had to be coming into your face during that shot, and that was the only shot I thought would be good. No, it is not. Okay. I saw this in IMAX opening night, sold out show, not 3D. I wanted to see it in 3D, but the times were like 1 p.m. and 10 p.m. for 3D, and that was it. I did go back the next night and saw it in plain old non-IMAX projection, again in 2D. Both times, very full audience. This thing's opening huge. Oh yeah, I agree. Pack theater when I went to see it in regular 2D. Yeah, interesting. Maybe it was the 3D that kept people away and and the weird time. You're right. It was on at like four o'clock on a Friday. People weren't off work yet. So it was pretty empty. So I didn't get much crowd response, no cosplay. I'm curious to know what you guys might have noticed the audience getting into or not. Mine was relatively quiet the whole time. Oh, my audience was, the first night especially, was a very emotive crowd. They were cheering, they were clapping, they were making all kinds of noises so I could follow them. The second crowd on Friday night, still responsive, a little bit less though, but I didn't see any cosplayers, I saw a lot of Marvel shirts, and one woman did bring like a Mjolnir. All the cosplayers are over at the Minions film, (laughs) if you know the gentleman minion meme that's going on. But is this one doing well then? You You said full houses, what's the expected box office? It got 30 million in Thursday previews, expected to get between 150 and 175 million for the weekend. You know, not record-setting numbers, but good Marvel numbers and higher than Ragnarok. Higher than the Batman. That's weird, because there's two dads in this. I thought you'd go woke, you go broke. <laughs> I guess that only applies to whatever your agenda is. Or humans, maybe? <laughs> And I will say it's shorter than the Batman or the typical Marvel movie. This thing feels fleet. Arnie, why don't you give him the plot and we'll whip through Love and Thunder. Come, come, gather round and listen to the legend of the Space Viking. 
a.k.a. the God of Thunder, a.k.a. Thor Odinson. On an alien world, a being named Gore, played by Christian Bale, is the last survivor of his species. He had to watch his daughter die of dehydration, and he's about dead himself. Then appeared Rapu, the being whose Gore's people worshipped as a god. Rapu was celebrating victory over a slain enemy who lay nearby. This enemy had wielded the Necrosword, an ancient weapon capable of slaying godlike beings. Rapu mocks Gore's allegiance and belief in an afterlife. Gore's feelings of betrayal call the Necrosword to him, and he kills Rapu, and will continue the Necrosword's mission of killing all the gods. Wounded in one battle with Gore is Lady Sif, played by Jamie Alexander. Remember her? Barely. Barely. During the battle, she sends a message to Thor asking for help. Thor, who's back in shape and is again played by Chris Hemsworth and has been adventuring with the Guardians of the Galaxy, parts ways with Star-Lord and company. Accompanied by his Cronin friend Korg, played by Taika Waititi, they rescue Sif. Next, Gore attacks New Asgard on Earth. Thor goes to fight his enemy alongside Asgardian King Valkyrie, played by Tessa Thompson, but he finds there's someone jacking his style on the battlefield. Jane Foster, played by Natalie Portman, now wields Mjolnir and has all the powers of Thor. I thought it was Jane Fonda. <laughs> she looked good for 80. Or Jodie Foster. She effectively slays Gore's shadow creatures, but Gore kidnaps all the Asgardian children and escapes. Thor, Korg, Jane, and Valkyrie travel across the stars to Omnipotent City, the gathering place of the gods. There, Thor hopes to raise an army of gods to help find Gore and rescue the kids. On their trip there, Thor and Jane rekindle their past romance, and Jane confesses to Thor she has stage 4 cancer. The chemotherapy wasn't working, and Mjolnir called to her. She went to New Asgard, and Mjolnir, shattered in the last film, reformed and gave Jane the powers. But as she grows weaker, she reverts back to her sickly, dying human form. They get to Omnipotent City, but there, leader Zeus, played by Russell Crowe, refuses to help. He's more interested in orgies than battle. He also refuses to let Thor leave, lest the god killer discover the location of the gods in Omnipotent City. In a battle to escape, Valkyrie steals Zeus's magical lightning weapon called Thunderbolt. With that in hand, and with the gods refusing to help stop Gore, Valkyrie, Thor, and Jane go to the Shadow Realm to rescue the children. Gore has the upper hand, though, and stabs Valkyrie through the back. Jane starts to lose her powers, and so Thor has to use his axe Stormbreaker to teleport them all back to Earth. But Stormbreaker was Gore's desire all along. The Necrosword told Gore that the teleportation power in Stormbreaker is needed so Gore can find the mythical being called Eternity. Eternity will grant the desire of the first person to find them, and then Gore can just wish all the gods dead in one stroke. Gore swipes Stormbreaker as Thor, Valkyrie, and Jane flee, and then Gore proceeds to meet Eternity. On Earth, the Asgardian Doctor realizes that using Mjolnir is sapping Jane's strength, making her cancer worse. If she becomes a Thor again, she will die. Thor convinces her to stay on Earth and fight the cancer so the two of them can have another chance at love. Then, as Valkyrie is still recovering, Thor goes alone to fight Gore and rescue the children. Thor gives all the children lightning powers so they can battle the shadow monsters while Thor fights Gore. But Thor loses, and, as he's about to be killed by the Necrosword, he's saved by Jane. Mjolnir called to her again, knowing Thor was losing. She chose to give up her life in order to save Thor and the children. With Jane's help, the children are saved, and the Necrosword is destroyed. 
without the sword, Gore begins to die, but Gore had found eternity. Before he wishes all the gods dead, though, Thor appeals to him as a father. Seeing Jane dying in Thor's arms reminds Gore of his daughter, and when Thor promises the girl would not be alone, Gore makes his one wish for his daughter to return. And Gore dies in his daughter's arms, while Jane dies in Thor's arms. And we see that Thor has found love, that between a father and a daughter, who now battle together as love and thunder. And we see Jane was brought to the gods' afterlife of Valhalla, where she's greeted by Heimdall, played by Idris Elba, as credits roll... To a scene of Zeus, the Greek god survived being impaled by Thunderbolt, but he's tasking his son Hercules, played by Brett Goldstein, with killing Thor as credits roll. As we get started, it's a kind of somber note. Taika Waititi is known for this. You know, we think of him as a humorist, but Jojo Rabbit was about the Holocaust, and <laughs> you called it fun, Jacob, but it was. But there was those stark moments, and this to begin this way really sells the theme of death. That weighs so heavily throughout the movie. Gore carrying his daughter across a desert wasteland. A disgruntled disciple of some god named Rapu? I don't know Rapu. Yeah, I'm not familiar with Rapu either, but given that this is an alien species on an alien world, I didn't think it would be a real god. Yeah, I mean, Gore is a pretty recent creation. I believe 2013 is when this character was created for the god butcher Ark, which I just love that name. I mean, this is pretty true to that comic origin. This alien whose family, his whole family dies. And yeah, he finds two gods like that have fallen in battle. And that's when he takes up the sword. But here, I feel you get this really somber opening. And then you get this really goofy image of a god in this weird paradise that just feels very exaggerated CGI, very bright in this oasis that Gore stumbles upon. To me, that's perfect because it just is how stark the difference is between how blithely the god treats water and fruits and everything and how this world of people that worship him is left in drought and to die. Yeah, exactly so. that It's how painful to realize my daughter starved to death and here you are gorging on melons and telling me I'm a fool forever following you. In fact, killing me because you're, you know that there's a sucker born every minute you can go to another planet and do this all over again. What isn't clear to me, I heard some lines of dialogue, Arnie, you saw this twice. What is that black-skinned creature that is laying there by the pond that left this necrosword conveniently where it's going to convert Bale? We're told by Thor later on that the necrosword has existed throughout eternity, passing from person to person, and the necrosword corrupts those people and is trying to kill all the gods. So that is just the person who wielded the sword before Gore, but the sword actually whispers to Gore in this moment. I noticed it in the second viewing. It actually is telling Gore, summon the Bifrost, seek eternity. So it's giving him his mission. And if you're wondering why All Black, the Necro Sword, as it's called in the comics, it can't speak is because there's a tide of venom. This sword was created by those symbiotes, at least in the comics, and came from their planet. And, and that's why it kind of slowly takes you over and can speak to you. And, and I don't think they're tying this to venom at all, but that is its origins in the comics. At least not yet, uh, but I get it. Gore is climbing out of the pond. He gets a scratch on his palm, and he is fated to die. He is only going to have so much time before he turns all black and falls over dead, too. He's a dead man walking, and his mission is to kill God. And he does kill Rapu really easily because the sword flies to his hand, and 
we have our villain creation. But yes, the sword will corrupt you and eventually kill you, and you just have to kill as many gods as you can before you die yourself. And as Gore takes this sword, I notice he has a vision of, like, a godhead, a golden-faced, like, Zardos thing in shadow. This is where the sword is telling him he must go, that there is an altar of eternity, and ultimately, the best way to kill all gods is basically to get to the center of the universe and be granted that wish. Yeah. But then we get our Marvel Studios logo. It's their pattern these days to just start, drop you right into a prologue, then give you the logo. I swore this was Steve Vai doing the guitar on here, maybe the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. They're really rocking out this Marvel theme. I agree. It starts off like a gentle acoustic guitar and then goes full 80s electric. That fits for Thor, right? When you think about that era of heavy metal... A lot of those album covers feel like worlds Thor would live in, populate, battle in. I like that as a choice. And there is a lot of Guns N' Roses here. And I'm not exactly sure why, but it really does fit, typically. I think because Taika wanted to make an 80s superhero comedy, I feel like this would have been huge in the 80s if this came out. Like, it feels so grounded there. So I guess that's why you're going for, yeah, that hair. I know Guns N' Roses are not strictly hair metal, but they're very hair metal adjacent to me. So like, yeah, you want to go with that vibe. Although we're here with Enya at the beginning. It's, it's, <laughs> they switch from that to finding out that like little Thor was strapped on, like his mom like took him into battle. Since he was an infant, he's been fighting beasts. Yeah, the baby Bjorn. And then we get to see Thor through the ages running through the trees, the youngest of which there is Chris Hemsworth's own son. Sure. But we're going to be told all this in retrospect. Korg is talking to a whole bunch of children in a cave about the deeds of Thor. And you know what I think they're doing here? Thunderdome, right? The way that that was being told to a whole bunch of children, the legend of Mad Max. Being not Australian or Kiwi, that didn't come to me immediately. That's not a series I think about a whole lot, but I guess so. It would make sense that that would be a point of reference for Taika. They didn't have like the TVs and the cave paintings and all that to really sell it. It's just Korg there. We'll get a lot of data dumps from Korg. And they're basically to remind us, if you didn't do what I did and go back and watch the three Thor movies, what does exactly happen? And, and even still, I feel like there's stuff that I forgot. Like, because Thor had adventures beyond Ragnarok, I, I guess, we left him where? In Endgame as the fat guy going off with the Guardians? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And here we're told a little bit more. He got in shape, and now he's dragging the Guardians into... I guess he likes combat. Like, I guess that this feeds his ego that he's able to take them into impossible situations on planets overrun by owl muppets and then at the last <laughs> minute come and save their ass. Let me ask you guys this because I know I love the humor in Thor Ragnarok. How is this humor working for you? Because already I noticed, like, it feels not story with jokes, but this feels like a lot of jokes now. And yeah, if we could get a story in there, we will. Maybe because the Guardians are involved here and I associate them with humor as well. I feel like I'm getting a lot of jokes. I feel bad for the Warriors 3, I'll say that much, when Korg is wrapping up Thor's backstory. I mean, they are just that guy and that guy and that guy. <laughs> yeah, who was that third guy? The Asian guy? Name him right now. What's the name of the Asian guy? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I only know Volstag, and he, he's not Volstag. That's Ray Stevens. I know Fandral, but the Asian guy does... Stymie me. Yeah, exactly. Tyka's right. Whoever that guy was is exactly his name. 
you know, it was Taika who killed all of them, but here he's just driving home how much those people did not leave a lasting impression in those two movies. So in a couple cases, the humor's taking me out, but Ragnarok was funny, and here I'm expecting nothing less. I feel like this is Hemsworth from 2016's Ghostbusters. I feel like they've really himbo-fied him. Again, his interaction with the Guardians, where he thinks he's all that, and he doesn't, you know, he's calling the ship his and all that. I get it. Like, we want the funny. This just feels like this is a cartoon character now. Flashback to my review of Ragnarok. I was telling you guys that on that podcast and you were shouting me down. You were like, no, it's hilarious. I'm like, but this is about Ragnarok. This should be more weighty. And the answer is Taika, he will allow too much room for a comedic riff. And that is his style. He would rather have digressions that are hilarious than be tight with the story. And so my guess is, if you're not liking this as a setup, it's because you've heard these jokes before. I would also say this differs from Ghostbusters 2016 in one big way. Here, I feel Thor's jokes are sad. When he's saying, it's my ship and my crew, I get the impression he knows that's not the case. But he's trying to hold on to something, you know? He's very melancholy here, and the only time he feels something is when he's going out into battle and killing people to Guns N' Roses playing. This time we get Welcome to the Jungle going as he's doing double dragon kicks on tanks and things. Oh, he does the Jean-Claude Van Damme splits to stop those tanks. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I love that. Which, you know, could explain the Enya, because there was that Jean-Claude video with Enya and doing the splits. What? Yeah, it was a viral thing with Van Damme on some trucks, and Enya's Only Time was playing, same song they used here. No, no, I know his signature move, but you say viral thing, that's why I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. (laughs) But... I think that when Thor's saying these things, he's trying to put on a brave front for the Guardians when he's actually really sad that they're leaving. And why are they leaving him on this planet? Is it strictly these shrieking goats that Thor was given as a gift? (laughs) Tooth Nasher and Tooth Grinder? That's the other thing about this whole scene. I got the feeling, like, as it progressed, I'm like, oh, this is all the Guardians we're going to get. It's not going to be as Guardians of the Galaxy. They're not going to do that. I, like, had the feeling this is where they split. And it's because there's so many gods being killed. Like, we see all these screens popping up on their ship of gods being killed. And so, yeah, they say they have to separate. Like, Thor's got to go save Sif, and the Guardians are gonna go save some, I don't know, unknown gods. Yeah, but Nebula's about to shoot a goat, and Drax is wrestling a goat. (laughs) I have to believe part of it is that Chris Pratt can't keep up, right? He doesn't want to work out as hard as Chris Hemsworth, and he's not as funny as Chris Hemsworth, so you just really see him in a reduced role here. Like, what normally would be his stealing the spotlight does feel like, yeah, you're not committed to being here. And so he has one pretty weak but thematically important monologue about learning how to feel shitty about someone when you love someone that dies. I forget. Walk me through this. What happened to Gamora? She died when Thanos threw her off the cliff to get the soul stone. Right. Okay. But then she traveled through time with Thanos into the present day. So past Gamora, who had never met Peter Quill, 
is now out in the galaxy and she knows she had a relationship with Peter Quill but has no idea who this guy is and never met him and so at the end of Endgame she ran off nobody knows where in the galaxy she went to Ah. and the Guardians were kind of looking for her so that Peter Quill could regain the love of his life. Yeah, okay, so Peter does have some, because I'm like, I thought she somehow survived, but the one that Peter loved is dead. He speaks from authority when he says, it's worth it to lose someone you love rather than just to be empty, and that's how he sees Thor. And we do get the joke of look into the eyes of someone you love. They cut that down from the trailer to a point where it's not funny here. Where Thor is, like, trying to look in Peter's eyes while Peter's looking at his crew. And the way they cut it, it's like, it doesn't play as a joke now. It just seems like a weird moment. And if I hadn't seen that trailer before every movie we've reviewed for the past two months, I wouldn't have perhaps noticed. But as it's cut, I don't know why they did that. Are you sad that they're not a part of this storyline? Would it? I feel like it would make the movie 30 minutes longer or more. I actually enjoy the fact that this thing clocks in under two hours. I'm fine with them going off and having a third movie I'll watch in a year. I don't know. It just felt weird like they were building this up as Thor and the Guardians of the Galaxy. No, that's just for one scene. I figured it would be the first half hour, and I figured they'd be gone by the time Jane gets there. There were just shots in the trailer, and I just had a feeling from the way it was being sold as Thor that they weren't going to stick around. I'm surprised, though, that they're as brief as they are. Mm. I thought they'd be minor roles, when in fact, I think they're cameos. Groot gets to say, I am Groot twice. I think Bradley Cooper has two lines. I think this was all phoned in while they were working on Guardians 3. And if you want Guardians, that's what you have to wait for. But I think that that team worked very well together in Infinity War. I liked the one-upsmanship between Thor and Peter Quill. That could have been a fun movie. It shouldn't be the movie where you have Jane with cancer and two Thors, though. You're just going to overcrowd it. It's right for the Guardians to go off, even if I do feel it's rather harsh of them to just be like, yeah, Thor, we're sick of you and we're going to leave. And Kraglin maybe bringing his new bride with him. I don't know if we're going to see that woman in Guardians 3. But yeah, this is a Thor solo movie. He's going to be solo. No, he's not going to be solo, but uh, he's not going to be with them. You mentioned Jane Foster, and we suddenly pan up to an MRI machine, and this was not spoiled by me anyway. I didn't see any indication in trailers or pre-release material that when we would see Natalie Portman again, she'd be dying. Yeah, if you've read The Mighty Thor, as she'll call herself in this, but that is the series where, yeah, Jane Foster becomes a Thor, and yeah, there's a whole cancer subplot to that, like it. It's pushing off the cancer while she's in this Thor mode and all that. But I agree, like, watching this, that was a surprise. I'm like, oh, did Natalie Portman just have, like, a movie still on her contract that she had to do for the MCU? Like, it feels weird. Like, they set her up to be dying in this one. No, she had no contract. People had thought she left angry after Dark World behind the scenes. She had come back to Dark World with the agreement Patty Jenkins would be directing that. She'd be helping out a female director. And then Patty Jenkins had creative differences and we got those guys from Game of Thrones. And then, you know, the fact that she just didn't come back and it was a dropped line that they broke up, fans had assumed that Portman was done with this and as bitter as she was done with Star Wars. We assumed that. Not fans. We said that. Yes, but we're not the only ones who said that. 
Yeah, we were dogging her as yet again not being a team player and quitting on an important franchise and leaving it in a lurch. And the truth is, what you're saying is that she was just holding out for a good part with a good director. What happened was Taika went to her and said, listen, here's what I have in mind. He didn't have it at the inception. He was writing this. He's like, it would be great to bring Jane in. He went to Portman, pitched her the idea, and she said yes before the meeting was over. So she didn't have to come back. She chose to come back. And yeah, I think this was all part of it. I feel like, kind of like Harrison Ford suiting up for episode seven, perhaps the thought of, I can finally get this character out of my life is part of it. (laughs) But I think that, you know, having a meaty role where she gets to be Thor and she gets to die might be what entices an Oscar winner back to this franchise. Yeah, I want to underline that. This is not, oh, we're writing her out by killing her. We're giving her a weightier part than most people get. Like, the idea that she is going to be suffering from a very human condition, while at the same time being gifted with superpowers. You know, they threw that idea out in Guardians of the Galaxy to Peter's mom, but they haven't given full consideration to someone with health problems before. This feels like new terrain that's... Again, it changes the color of this movie. I will say that while this movie might be jokes a lot, what I will remember about this movie is that they addressed cancer. Like, this is the stuff that matters. I mean, they acknowledge cancer happens. They show some chemo going on. I don't know if they address it. Like, you don't see the horrors of people suffering from cancer. She's not losing her hair. I think you're overselling how weighty this cancer issue is. They don't even really want to seem to deal with it. Well, they do show us losing the hair with the flashback to her own mother who died of cancer and gave her the message, whatever you do, don't stop fighting, which is actually going to be driving her throughout this movie. I mean, okay, don't stop fighting. Again, this is not weighty to me. This is very generic platitude. I hear what you're saying. In the end, she's going to put on a superhero suit and fight villains and all of that. And this is not about dying in a bed. But I will say that for me, these moments color the film. Particularly because what's the next movie in the MCU? Black Panther. And why will that movie feel different? Because Black Panther won't be able to do it. Chadwick Boseman died of cancer. This is the Marvel Universe acknowledging that being a superhero sometimes doesn't change fate. And that is a heavy subtext. And one that I haven't seen a superhero movie carry. Not in the Marvel Universe anyway. That is definitely skewed lighter. I mean, it's not super heavy, but it is a somber moment. They do try to lighten it. We do get a cameo here from Darcy, Kat Denning. She's back for one single scene with the wardrobe. She looks like she just literally walked off the set of WandaVision, walked in here, read a couple lines, and is done. But they're calling back to those first two Thor films. We got to see the Warriors 3, if not by name. We're going to see Selvig, Skarsgård, perhaps doing a Skype call in for a brief moment saying, I'm sorry, your cancer is bad. Did you think she was going to die? That's, I mean, what these cameos are telling us, aside from just reminding us, the, the old players, is that they're telling her to slow down, do the chemo, don't try to, like, run into the lab and fix this maybe get some perspective, you're stage four. And, you know, that's a risky joke, too, when she's like, well, but out of how many stages? I mean, like, this stuff, I think you should, you know, acknowledge that this is weightier than anything in Ant-Man and Wasp. 
I don't know, maybe it's her way of laughing it off. I did chuckle when she said, aren't there any more stages? But the fact that she she has her lab and she's checking her blood and looking for a cure, and then, eh, let me turn to this book of Norse mythology and read about Mjolnir out of the blue. No, it rattles. It makes some kind of sound. The book moves. When she said Mjolnir called to her, that book did something to say, hey, look at me. And Darcy did say, do you want to play, what did she call it, the God card? Yeah, get back with Thor. They got magic. They could cure you. Mm. Yeah, I wasn't sure what Thor could do for her, but they never got the ether out of her. I don't know why they think they could cure her cancer. Like, But you know what? This is what people go through. That's When modern science doesn't work, you go to spirituality. What's going to be the next level? The problem is that Jane just doesn't have as many scenes as Hemsworth. And so you're right. This doesn't have the weight that it could, or I would argue should. I'm just putting it out there. This is my favorite stuff of this movie. I'll just say I was scared coming into this. I knew Jane Foster was going to be Thor. I thought she'd take the movie over. I thought she might even take the role over. Did I think Jane was going to die in this movie? No, I never did. I thought that at the end Hemsworth would make that magic wish to save her. I thought that till the very end scene, when you have a magic genie to grant a wish, the wish would be cure her cancer, right? My fear was Hemsworth was going to die, and we'd have female Thor going forward in the future Avengers movies. That's been the pattern so far, is the old cast member passes the baton, and the new untested person says, it's me now. And I did like, Jane's gonna go and look for Mjolnir, she's gonna go to New Asgard, which we saw established, what, in Endgame, I believe. More Guns N' Roses, Paradise City. Well, I do love that it's become this tourist attraction, like, there's all these cruise ships at the dock, and, like, yeah, that's what we would do, yet God's living among us, let's turn it into Disneyland. Yeah. And I forgot about Valkyrie. I mean, she's Tessa Thompson just never registered as a character to me. Like, even re-watching Ragnarok, she's such a minor moment in that. I, did, I'm, I was surprised to see her come back, and she's the king of this establishment, which means she cuts ribbons on ice cream parlors and does Old Spice ads. Yeah, there is a tie-in. I felt like it had to be a product placement for Old Spice. And yes, if you go on Twitter, there are sponsored posts of Asgardian Old Spice things. It's like, I may not be Thor, but I can smell like him or something like that. <laughs> I mean, Old Spice is retro. I'll give you that. I don't know anyone that wears it, but okay. And Artie, let me ask you, what was the fate of Mjolnir? Like here, Jane Foster is going to find Mjolnir. It's in this little display case, all broken. I remember Hela breaking it. But in Endgame, did Captain America go back in time to get that hammer? Or did Thor go back in time? That wasn't the real hammer he used in Endgame. When they traveled through time, they traveled back to Thor the Dark World so they could grab the ether out of Natalie Portman. And at that point, Thor called Mjolnir to him. That's right. Okay. And then when Cap was going back in time to take the stones back, he has Mjolnir. He has to go back in time and put Mjolnir back during that. And so what I love here is you can't even move the shattered pieces of Mjolnir. They had to dig up like a huge plot of dirt. You can lift the dirt Mjolnir's on, but you can't lift Mjolnir. It's like an elevator. If you put Mjolnir in an elevator, it's not that the elevator is worthy, that the elevator can go up and down. It's that Mjolnir's on an elevator. So they have this plot of dirt right there. If you don't remember that Hella shattered it, though... 
They're going to remind you Matt Damon is back, as is Luke Hemsworth and Sam Neill in another play. They all did this telling us how Loki died in Ragnarok, and now here they're going to recap the events of Ragnarok with... My favorite actress of all time, Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> yes. Talk about Ghostbusters 2016. Mm. Yeah. I knew you were already struggling with Portman when Melissa McCarthy came out and, uh, like, again, does this bit here about breaking a hammer on a string. I just wondered if that was Arnie's heart breaking as well. <laughs> you know, she's a very small part of this. I don't quite get the joke of having her play Hella, but... I like the play. I like how Sam Neill has to crawl off the stage and Matt Damon is spraying spritzer in his eyes in order to tear up over his father's death. I mean, it's a funny scene. I'll give it that. Earlier when Portman was getting chemo, she does that whole interstellar monologue explaining wormholes and all that. And we'll get an event horizon reference in this. Yes. Is that because Sam Neill's here? That may be. I just took it to mean Taika has great taste in movies and loves Event Horizon as much as I do. (laughs) Yeah, he's just promoting his fellow Kiwis. (laughs) But yeah, Event Horizon, great film in our book. Read our book. But all right, this humor, this play, funny though it may be, it was done exactly this way in Ragnarok. We did have in Hawkeye a whole joke about Marvel going to Broadway. If you're not laughing as hard, it may not be because they're not doing it well. It may just be deja vu, right? I was having a lot of deja vu during this movie. It's not laugh out loud funny. I'm curious to know what your crowds were doing. It's more like smirk funny. I thought it was amusing. I didn't think it was hilarious. Yeah, I wish I was smirking. Like, I've seen this before. This doesn't feel like they're elevating the jokes to the next level at all. But my theater was laughing. My wife and kids were laughing at all this. Like, they really enjoyed it. My audience was cracking up. I laughed out loud several times throughout this movie. This play was one of the scenes that I laughed out loud during. I laughed out loud at the screaming goats. I do love the screaming goats. My wife has been wandering around the house screaming exactly like those goats for days now. I can't laugh hard enough at that, but I can't say I laughed at all the jokes the way the audience did. They were finding it funnier than I was. They laughed at trailer jokes, and that's my barometer. Is like, if you're laughing at a joke you've already seen a dozen times, then you are really into the humor. Or just really pre-sold on the franchise. I mean, that's a fan for you. Well, I'll tell you one thing you won't laugh at. Christian Bale might be the most ghoulish Marvel villain yet. Like, there is just something horrifying about the way he looks when he pops back up to send shadows to take over all the kids of New Asgard. Yeah, I don't know how you get this Christian Bale performance and this goofy comedy that Taika's making. It doesn't go together for me, and I wish this was much more on the Christian Bale level. Like, if you're talking about a a villain that is going around slaying gods, like, what does that mean? Like, it's something I don't feel like they really delve into. Like, what would it mean if all the gods are dying? And it's a real weighty story arc in the comics that I really loved, The God Butcher. And, like... 
this really heartbreaking truth that like Thor has to come in terms with as a god. But here, yeah, he's super scary. Like one of the at least best looking villains. And yet I feel like I'm watching an episode of Rainbow Bright. I don't know if you remember that cartoon, but like Rainbow Bright and all her friends, they wanted color and a rainbow. And then there's the bad guy who wanted to get rid of all color. <laughs> like they're literally going to go to a black and white shadow world at the end of this. But here's the thing. I mean, again, think about Jojo Rabbit. I mean, it was mostly comedy, but then you'd have those moments where there was an important character that committed suicide or you remember, all oh, right, gas chambers, terrible. Like, I think that is the talent of Taika to take uncomfortable subject matter and be able to jump back and forth between farce and tragedy. I'll say if Jojo Rabbit's our comparison, I wasn't hot on that one. Like, a good movie, not great. I thought that one had tonal issues too. Like, you have your funny Taika is Hitler, and then, yeah, you have some very serious dark moments. It's a tough thing to do, and I don't know if Taika's always successful at it. Mine is more of a quibble. If you have a character that was monotheistic and believed their god could do anything, if you find out there's a bunch of other gods, like, his existential crisis is intriguing, but it seems strange that he knows that there are other gods, but feels disappointed that his own god was a fraud. I'm like, doesn't that go with the territory of knowing that there are 500 other gods? I don't think he knew there were other gods until he got the Necrosword, though. I think the Necrosword informed that in him. But I love Christian Bale's performance here. I do think he's one of the more motivated villains we're getting in the MCU. I understand his plight. Death of a daughter, a failure of gods to save you, and to see your god mocking you. I mean, that would... I completely understand what he's gone through, why he's as extreme as he is, but... Christian Bale is playing it counterintuitively. He's got this, like, whiny voice that he's going to use that ends up being more creepy than funny. Again, I lose the actor to the character, but he moves kind of spider-like, and he's got all these shadow monsters he's able to summon. I'm really into gore as... He's no Thanos, he's no Killmonger, but he is perhaps a good second-tier bad guy in the MCU. He cut off Sif's arm, right? I don't know if Gore took the arm or if the Shadow Demons did. I do like seeing Jamie Alexander back. You know, if they'd brought her back in the last one, they would have killed her so quickly. I thought that's what they were doing here. I knew she was in this movie because she was at the premiere. I saw an interview with her. And when we come to her and she's laying there and like, I'm going to go to Valhalla. I'm like, you f <laughs> Taika. Why did you do this? Why did you just bring her back to have a death scene the same as the Warriors 3? I mean, do you care about Sif? Like, I don't care if she dies. I liked the love triangle that was teased in the first couple movies. I liked Jamie Alexander as an actress. I thought she was pretty good. I was feeling a little cheated if she was just back to die. But no, she's going to stay the one-armed warrior Sif. She's going to be brought back to New Asgard to get medical attention, and this is going to bring the two Thors together. The town is overrun by shadow monsters. Thor, Chris Hemsworth, can see lightning in the crowd. Who's that guy? That guy is his ex-girlfriend. And we do see Thor, he, he's feeling inadequate. He's got to change his armor to his Odinson armor from the comics. Oh, that's some kick-ass armor, though. I like the gold trim and the big cape. The helmet is a little overdone. I like the outfit. That helmet's too busy. 
I don't know how I go with Hemsworth's performance. I know Hemsworth thinks Hemsworth's the funniest person around, but he almost goes into Scooby-Doo voice when he goes, Jade? That's what I'm saying. It's like this himbofication of Thor, which I know started in the last one. Here, though, like, shadow monsters are stealing our children, and we're going to have, like, this rom-com meet-cute moment. I think it has been always there. Even in that first movie, it was just so tonally, you want to talk about tonally awkward, that first Thor movie, like really struggled how to characterize him. Here, he looks more comfortable in the role than he ever has, and more buff. He just looks like he owns this, like he's accepted that he is Thor, which is why it's so funny that he's not Thor anymore. And so this is an interesting conflict. As Arnie mentioned, a lot of fans could get really angry really quick if this is an emasculation story in which some woman's going to take away his phallic symbol. Like that. That could really go bad. I feel like because she has cancer and because she's really not trying to outdo him, she has Mjolnir, he has Stormbreaker. Theoretically, they're two different superheroes. Well, the thing is, it's not only a love story between Thor and Jane. It's also a love story between Thor and his weapons. Like, (laughs) he's always talking to Stormbreaker. Like, it's jealous of him and his love for Mjolnir. And I found it silly, like, that he's whispering sweet nothings into Mjolnir and and Stormbreaker at times. It works perfectly for me. Those are some of my laugh out loud moments is when Stormbreaker accusingly floats in from the side of frame and turns to look at him. And he tries to call Mjolnir to him and Stormbreaker's like, me, you mean? (laughs) It's good stuff. I agree. It is good stuff. And you want that level. It's Marvel. It's not DC, right? Like you do humor in a Marvel movie for sure. Is it too much? And is it too much of something we've already gotten 28 helpings of? I thought that the why the romance collapsed, we didn't see that. Again, it was in a really like an overlooked moment. It was like a passing joke that Thor mentioned that he and Jane broke up in whatever movie that was. Ragnarok. So to hear, to go back and have it soundtrack to ABBA and to really see how it's intimacy that scared them. They both got frightened by how much they loved each other. I think that does happen. I do think... It's interesting that they ended up putting work between them, and one day he didn't come home, she wrote a note, and they lived different, illustrious, but isolated lives. And I think this movie does a really good job of mixing laugh moments with earnestness, because I appreciate this montage of Jane and Thor's romance. It's the stuff we didn't see that took place between, I guess, Thor 2 and their breakup, because they didn't see each other between Thor 1 and Thor 2. This would be the post stuff. I never saw Jane Foster as quite so giggly, but I like this romance stuff. And yet, I'm still going to laugh out loud when Thor gets a call from Nick Furry. I didn't catch that joke. It was misspelled in his phone. He's showing, oh, I have a call. And it was Nick Furry instead of Nick Fury. Oh, okay. I think that's what I'm going to name my next dog. And there is a meta moment because when Jane and Thor are reunited, she goes, what's it been? Three, four years? Thor says, eight years, seven months, six days. Well, if you do the math from now till then, that's when Thor The Dark World was in theaters. The last time Jane Foster was on camera, Uh, they used cut footage for Endgame, so that doesn't count. Yeah, what it asks is, where does that leave them now? He's not dating anyone. She's not dating anyone. Normally, it would be just so easy to say, we're going to fall in love. Or, okay, I don't like you because you're taking my job. You could play it either way. 
But the cancer part of this is what, again, I think makes this unique. When that comes back in, that's what really holds her back from risking intimacy. This scene also has one vital storytelling moment. The question is, why could Jane wield Mjolnir now? And it's because, unknowingly, the same way that Odin whispered to Mjolnir and said, you know, you have to be worthy to wield this hammer, Thor whispered to Mjolnir and said, I need you to promise me you'll always protect her. And so that is what gave Mjolnir the magic to call to Jane when she was sick and to give her this power. Yeah. I think you need that scene. Otherwise, people would be like, why? Yeah, that is as much explanation as we are going to get. I thought there might be more science to it. Again, she explains wormholes and and all of that. I thought we would really need a complicated reason why it reassembled, why it's draining her power and making her cancer worse instead of better. In the end, most of it goes unsaid. If you want the comic book explanation, I looked it up after. I was curious. Did she die in the comics? What was happening is Mjolnir was purging all unnatural things from her body. And while the cancer was natural because it was part of her, it was purging all the chemo drugs. And so it was undoing all of her treatments. So Mm. you can kind of carry that if you know the comic knowledge, you can carry that over to this and give you a scientific explanation for why being Thor is making her weaker. I appreciate Arnie's. I mean, it is a little strange because what I thought I heard at the beginning here is Mjolnir's going to save her. And then at the end, it's Mjolnir is what killed her. Yeah. So that was confusing to me that that clarification helps a little. I thought the conflict would be if she just stayed the mighty Thor, she would be fine. She would stay alive. But it it seems to imply that she's even dying when she is Thor. Meanwhile, we see that Gore has not succeeded at killing any gods. He's not good at this. Uh, Or I guess he's not good at killing any gods we know. I mean, we've seen gods kill that giant, like, snow beast where Sif was, was a god. Whatever that was. The nicest one you'll ever meet, I guess. But he didn't kill anybody here, but he stole all the children away. But one of them happens to be the son of Heimdall. That's never been mentioned. (laughs) Yeah, which means he can get those weird golden brown eyes and teleport his head (laughs) to let them know Star Wars Force Ghost style they're being kept in a cage and Thor gets a scene of trying to entertain children that are afraid of dying and him telling them well at least you'll go to Valhalla yeah a a big portion of the conversation is Heimdall's kid trying to convince Thor to call him Axel because this is all about guns and roses Well, it's a start of the conversation. The bulk of the conversation takes place when Thor projects, and I think one of the evolutions we see here is at the beginning, Thor is very uncomfortable with children. He doesn't know how to talk to children. He's trying to assuage them in ways that, you know, eventually Heimdall's son Axel is like, just leave, you're not helping anything. Right. And by the end of this, he's going to have learned how to deal with children. I think his brief exposure to these kids is in some way preparing him to be a father. That's something that we're told was thought about with Jane, is the fact of mortality. Do they have kids? Jane will die before Thor, because Thor is a god and Jane is a mortal. And so dealing with death and dealing with fatherhood is part of the reason they broke up. And so we're going to see Thor evolve in this movie. His arc is to find love through fatherhood and to become a good father. So here we see bad father Thor. 
Although I will say that Gore is a father and he's not any better at entertaining these kids. He like grabs some <laughs> snake named Orky or Orphy or something and decapitates it for fun. Again, this scene would not work were it not for Bale. Like Bale somehow pulls this off in a way that this is mesmerizing instead of superfluous. So Thor comes back knowing they're in a shadow realm, needing to get there. We have Valkyrie basically commandeering one of her flying Viking boats uh, as a passage. The screaming goats can lead the way. Stormbreaker can provide the engine. And I assume Matt Damon and Chris's brother will do a great play about this next movie. Did you guys notice on the goat boat the sign? Cocktails and Dreams. Oh, yeah, straight from the Cocktails movie. I thought that it could have been. I wasn't <laughs> conclusive. I was like, it was. <laughs> I think it was from that wretched movie. I'm, I'm telling you, Taika wanted to make an 80s film. <laughs> I see this. It's very evident that there's a lot of 80s here at any rate. And so, yeah, we're in Act Two. And what's weird is like, it's really abbreviated. Usually, and this is not to always Marvel's credit, but usually you spend a lot of time going from here to fro. We got to do this. We got to find this. We got captured here. It usually is like an hour and a half. And what's surprising is they go to two places before we get to the climax. Like this is a really short journey to rescue the kids. And what disappoints me is that their journey is really pointless. I feel like what is trying to be done here is trying to recapture the magic of Thor going to Sakaar in that last movie, which was a planet full of junk people, and there Thor would evolve and get his teammates and move on to the mission with Loki and Valkyrie and the ship and have started a revolution and really made a change. Here, this entire trip to Omnipotent City feels like an excursion for humor's sake, but what they get out of this is something they didn't even come for. They came to build an army of gods to fight a god butcher, which makes sense. They're going to just decide halfway through this visit, eh, you know, these gods, they're not very useful. We're just going to steal Zeus's weapon on a whim. It's disappointing storytelling. I expected a little better. It just means this movie is not up to Ragnarok in my mind. Or you're not liking Russell Crowe as much as Jeff Goldblum. Oh, I love Russell Crowe. I'll say this, Omnipotent City, it's a great cantina scene. I enjoy like all the cuts to these weird alien gods and some human ones. We'll see a Maori one there that I'm sure Taika put in. Visually, it's kind of fun, but I agree with you, Arnie. Like, this goes on way too long. We're gonna get a pointless fight scene just so we could get a lightning bolt. Like, make this a stealth mission to just steal the lightning bolt or something if that's what the important thing is. There are two gods I gotta bring up. First of all, Korg's god is there. Sitting on scissors. Yes, on a throne of scissors, because Rock beats scissors. And then, what was with the bow god? Is that a reference to the Pixar film bow? Again, I don't know. It's just a joke. We're just going to have some bow there. I don't think you have to overthink it. It's just funny that there's a god for dumplings. I mean, like, there's a god for everything. <laughs> and you know what? I would worship a god for dumplings. I love dumplings. <laughs> <laughs> You'd bow before bow? I would. I certainly would. But here's the thing. You, I hear the crankiness about this is not as good. I think it's just as good. But maybe what you're not responding to is the fact that it's more of the same. That, yeah, Russell Crowe is taking up too much time in the same way that Jeff Goldblum took up too much time. What was the point of that whole thing other than to reunite Hulk, who ends up having nothing to do with the climax? I mean, a lot of Ragnarok was pointless. But it was amusing. 
I guess what my issue is here, and, and you were talking about weighty issues with cancer, this should be a weighty film. We're taking on the death of God. Are the gods useful? I think this is very relevant as we address different pillars of power in our society today. Sure. Yeah. Making rulings that maybe half the country doesn't agree with, but it's all jokes. Like maybe we switch places to it where you felt like Ragnarok, that's supposed to be dangerous. I feel like yeah. the death of God should be weighty too. And this doesn't really have anything to say about that. They're uncaring and they're frivolous. Like, yeah, okay, I get that. I've seen that sketch a hundred times. Let's go a little bit deeper. On my second viewing, I really started to look at this scene and be like, what is it saying about the one percenters and the elite and how we don't want to cause a panic and let the other people die, but just stay here and embrace our orgies and <laughs> eat and drink and just stay with the one percenters. And in the end, I'm like, it says nothing. It's just a little bit of a joke, but it's, you know, the humor is really Russell Crowe doing this horribly. Is it racist patois what is that accent he's doing <laughs> yeah some kind of awful greek accent and wielding a favorite weapon he sounds like socrates from bill and ted mm -hmm. yeah he's got a cool lightning bolt and they, they bring up the idea that thor himself is sort of a ripoff in the same way that james stole thor's look hemsworth stole zeus's look and becoming the god of thunder here with the god of the lightning bolt but don't meet your heroes. The The point is, yeah, it's a simple, obvious. I feel like we as cynical middle-aged men are not shocked to think that gods and people that we put up on pedestals are vain and self-centered and uncaring. But that is the shock. Hemsworth is experiencing the same outrage that Bale experienced in the beginning of the movie. I thought you cared, and you're telling me we're not worried about these problems as guardian problems or as guardian problems. If that didn't shock you, were you shocked by the butt and the Loki brother tattoos on Thor's back when Zeus flicked too hard? No, my wife was excited for the butt scene. I think that's why she wanted to see it. Is this the first ass? I know Captain America bragged about his ass, but I think this is the first exposed derriere we've seen in a Marvel movie. It is, and this leads me to a big existential crisis. Because where do Marvel movies go after they leave theaters? Disney Plus. Well, what did Disney Plus do to Daryl Hannah's ass? Yeah, they're going to Daryl Hannah <laughs> Thor's ass. Oh, I have now. no doubt it'll be blurred. <laughs> no, they'll cover it in hair. They'll make his hair really long like they did this in Splash. <laughs> I'm starting the hashtag now, Disney Plus. Release the butt cut. They will release the butt cut, but not on <laughs> Disney Plus. And again, there's a lot about this movie that does play to a young audience. And then, yes, as Jacob has pointed out, there's a lot of existential ideas that are sophisticated. Is this movie working at serving both audiences? audiences, I would say in the end, the youngsters are going to win out. Disney is going to win out. In the end, this is a lightweight shaggy dog story and not a deep exploration about God complexes. I will say I thought something during these scenes I never thought I would think. I love Korg. I thought he was great in Ragnarok. I loved him with New Master 69 in Endgame. And during this scene, when they're attacking Zeus and Korg's like, you never said go. I'm thinking, there's too much Korg here. I'm actually finding Korg's one-liners to be too much. Taika is just inserting himself in this movie way too much. And I wished that Korg had stayed on the goat boat or something. And then... Korg dies, and I'm like, oh shit, that is like the second I thought there was too much Korg, they kill him, and I'm like, no, I didn't want him dead, I just wanted him reduced. 
Yeah, my family almost walked out. They're like, if Korg's dead, we're done with this. Again, it's a theme of this movie. I mean, you realize in, when you take in, in full contemplation, it's all about uh, being able to love something that dies. And so this is kind of a waffle. Yes, they kill Korg. It is a heartfelt moment. And then you find out he can still talk. Like he's still a rock face that they can carry around. Yeah, it's just your face. I guess all his organs are in his face. And I knew they were setting something up when you actually find out how Korgs are made. Like two men go sit in a lava pool for a while and a baby rock monster comes out. It's kind of like how you'd make a diamond. I take it that Korg's people are just all male then? Because, you know, that's the only way to make a baby is two male... Or he has gay dads. He may have gay dads, but he talks about how two Cronins go down to the lava pool and make a baby. I just thought they were, you know, not quite asexual, but they don't have gender. Come on, you're not missing this, right? This is them taking a risk with, quote-unquote, the gay agenda. Yeah. Well, they did say in Ragnarok that Valkyrie was the first bisexual character in the Marvel Universe. That never acts out on it. (laughs) Right. That was completely removed from the movie, all evidence of. But here, it's here. Yeah, she's going to kiss the hand of one of the maidens of Zeus. Yes, they're taking a risk here. In the same way they took a risk with Toy Story last month, and it blew up in their face. Will they get punished for this? Is there going to be a letter writing campaign? No. I don't know. Who knows? I mean, this is always a risk to put in at all ages. People are going to get outraged. This is peddling an agenda. To- Oklahoma's going to have to fast forward through that scene. Yeah, we know that this is a risk. So yes, Arnie, there is some wiggle room to just say that these are asexual rock creatures that are forging a child out of the molten earth core. Or we could see that this is, yet again, tiptoeing to a controversial subject and acknowledging that many families have same-sex parents, so we want to include them. I think it's also shocking they kill Zeus. I mean, they'll undo that by the end here, but I was not expecting for Russell Crowe to bite it here. Thor kills his god, and that's interesting, too. It brings him in line with Gore. I thought they were going to do that. I just, again, they don't want to deal with the death of God in this film. That might be the bad guy's motivation. But yeah, I thought, oh, they're going to see something eye to eye on how useless the gods are. And But they're not. They're going <laughs> to move right along. Again, the weird thing for me is you'd think they'd hit four other planets before they would get to Gore's planet in the Shadow Realm. But wouldn't you know it, the goats, as soon as Jane has come out about her cancer diagnosis... The goats have crashed onto the surface, screaming, and they are in a trap where they've actually brought the item that Gore needed. Help me out with this. Is there any logic to this? Stormbreaker is the key to him getting to the Altar of Eternity? Because it has the Bifrost built into it, and you need the Bifrost to get to Eternity. Okay, I mean, it did answer my question. Like, when Gore first showed up to New Asgard, I'm like, why isn't he just going after the gods? Like, what is with all this rounding up the kids? But, yeah, Stormbreaker, they don't have Heimdall anymore to control the Rainbow Bridge. It's all through Stormbreaker now. Mm, I see. Okay, so that's basically, this is, playing into Gore's hand and this is also a moment where Hemsworth is going to have to make a choice for love that is going to hurt like basically we see Jane and Valkyrie being strung up by the shadow monsters and Jane has thrown away Stormbreaker Hemsworth is going to have to summon it if he wants his love to be saved and so that's some kind of thematic crossroads that he will end up choosing love again and again over what will protect and keep the bad guy at bay. 
And I thought he was victorious. I mean, the way Gore is like, call the axe, call the axe. I'm like, the moment he calls the axe, Gore has something in mind. No, he's actually going to succeed in fighting off shadow monsters and using the lightning from the axe and everything. It's only at the very last moment, I feel like Gore gets really lucky and <laughs> steals that axe. I mean, he, yeah, he pulls it out at the last moment, but Valkyrie's been stabbed with the bolt at this point. Like, they are trying to retreat through Stormbreaker, but yeah, I guess Stormbreaker could still cast a teleportation thing, even though Gore's going to grab it at the last second and pull it away. Do you think they blinked on Valkyrie? It feels like kind of like a Tobey Maguire moment. Like, they were going to kill him, and then somewhere they were like, ah, we can't kill her. She'll have a scene edited really out of nowhere saying, oh, I just got stabbed through the liver, but I can't participate in the rest of the movie. Yeah. She's also at the end of the film. She is king of Asgard. I think they'd be loath to remove her from king even though I feel like Thor is a more listened to leader. Like, she can't hold a room. Thor speaks and everybody gets quiet. But what they're doing is faking me out. Like, I think Korg is dead. Nope, Korg's not dead. I think Valkyrie is dead. Nope, Valkyrie's not dead. I think Jane isn't going to die because there's that wish at the end. Right. Oh, Jane is going to be the one dead. So I think maybe they intend to kill her, but I also think maybe they're just messing with the audience so that you get your guard let down, and then the next thing you know, you're shocked by Jane's death. Yeah, yeah. The sophisticated viewer believes they've already seen how they're going to write themselves out of this conflict because cancer is not something a superhero can battle unless you have a magical wish. And we have more of this debate. They go back to New Asgard and the doctors are saying she can't get out of bed again. She needs to slow down. She needs to stop fighting as Thor. And this is a real challenge for this couple because obviously... Thor wants Jane to live, but he also wants to respect her body, her choice. If she wants to die fighting, I guess it's her right. They handle that pretty well. It's a sticky topic, and stickier still in recent politics that there was no way they could know was going to hit this week. But in giving Jane agency, and yet still having Thor say, Listen, I love you. I want to have a time with you, but you have to make your final choice. I think they handled that well, you know? I don't think anybody can... No, people can complain about anything, but I don't think that there's much room to complain on this. It's actually a very sweet moment where he finally proclaims, I love you. He knocks off all the goofy, I don't have emotions sort of stalling, and it's a genuine selling of the love you feel it. Again, this is my favorite stuff in this movie, when it actually dares to step away from all the snark and be, yeah, risk being cheesy. For by and large, there's just not enough of it. Like, it would be great if this movie were even bolder with its emotional content. But let's have a climax, which supposedly is only going to be with Thor. He goes back. Gore has used Stormbreaker to build a bridge to that big golden godhead, and other godheads are falling, including, I think, the thing that Gemma Chan was praying to in Eternals. Oh yeah, there's definitely some Celestials. We see him in Omnipotent City, there's like a stone one in, in this Eternity scene. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and they almost crushed the kids, but Thor comes back in time, and then he's going to, for a limited time only, give all of the younger set here the wish fantasy of having his power and fighting shadow monsters. To November 8th. This is a Disney film, right? Like, yes, let's make all the kids Thor. I kind of like that. I always like when all the normal people get to have powers and, like, get to actually help the hero at the end. Like, that's kind of fun. You know, Spider-Man 2, everyone on the subway trying to stand up to Doc Ock. A step too far, having a five-year-old girl use a stuffed animal to zap things. That's what I'm saying. It's when that bunny comes out (laughs) and shooting lasers. Put the bunny back in the box. I'm sorry, but my audience cheered at the stuffed bunny scene. They loved that bunny scene. So did mine. They loved it. I'm just saying that this is feeling real kitty. Like, yes, the kids in the audience love it. You can feel the Disney coursing through the veins in this scene. That it's just... See, again, I want to point out, Taika always has kids, it feels like, in his movies. There was that one with Sam Neill and the the little kid, the wildebeest one. or Like, I feel he's good with the kid actors, and they're fine here... But maybe this is not what you wanted to focus on in this movie. I mean, having Thor go face to face with a god butcher, like, Thor is a god. Like, I want him to have some reflective moments at that point as we go to our final conflict. I do wish Thor had a single moment of reflecting on what it means to be a god and why this guy is butchering gods. I don't think he ever views the God Butcher from the view of a god. He views the God Butcher from the view of an Avenger. He's like, you know, I gotta take down the God Butcher. But child stuff can grate on me so badly when I feel like they're pandering to children. It's all about tone. It's all about execution. And with November rain going and all these kids with their light up eyes and they're just taking out minion shadow monsters. It's not like they are the ones overtaking gore. It's not like they're clapping for Tinkerbell and winning the entire thing. I'm really down with it. I'm loving this ending. But I'm also loving that as soon as Thor gets Stormbreaker out of the ground, he's throwing it to Axel and saying, get the kids out of here. You know, you're not going to be able to win this battle. I'm the one who has to win this battle. Yeah, this is not going to be the Thor movie that seeds it to small children. But is this the Thor movie that seeds it to Jane? She will make the choice to come back. Thor is down on the ground with the necrosword about to be skewering him. And she essentially, because she's using Mjolnir, she will die for this reason. Is this heroic? Do you feel like she has been this movie's champion? I don't know. It's a woman laying her life down for a man, ultimately. Like, yeah, Thor couldn't save the day, so she walks in and gives her life to do it. Mm, Yeah. Or call her doctor. I felt like there was a little bit of come up into that mini scandal about the first lady, Jill Biden, and her doctorate. They slipped that in there. Oh, I didn't even put that together. But here, I saw it as she isn't giving her life for a man. She's giving her life for hundreds of lives. It's a little iffy to me how she knows she's needed. They, like, show Thor losing, and she's tossing and turning in bed, and then Mjolnir just kind of floats there and looks at her the same way Stormbreaker had looked at Thor so many times. But, you know, I like this moment. I think they're using Jane so well in this movie, and the fact that she takes out the Necrosword. They break it, and like Mjolnir, it looks like the Necrosword is just going to reform itself So, like, the fact that Mjolnir now, when you throw it, it can shoot, like, buckshot. I love that, yeah, because it's been smashed, they could break up into those little pieces. I did like that detail. Mm Mm-hmm, that was fun. 
yeah, I thought that was really cool. And yet it's also functional here at the end. It makes me like wonder which came first. Did they decide that Mjolnir had to surround the Necrosword and then they retroactively made that a cool thing or how they came about writing this? But it's Mjolnir and Jane that will finally destroy the Necrosword that's been around since the dawn of time. And she gets her catchphrase. She's been working on that this whole time. Eat my hammer. I guess it was the best one of the ones she had. Better than feel the rainbow. How did she not come up with It's Hammer Time? If this movie is so 80s, why not It's Hammer Time? They didn't want to pay MC Hammer the royalties. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Playing Don't Touch This over this ending would not be the same as November Rain. <laughs> and I feel like she missed one earlier because she's going to say that feel the rainbow. And I'm like, don't you mean taste the rainbow? You're missing an opportunity here for a Skittles tie-in. <laughs> yeah, Skittles didn't pay him enough money to make that the catchphrase. <laughs> Okay, so, yes, she wins, but at the same time, Stormbreaker has already created that portal. They're at the altar of eternity. Gore has won. Thor will just out and out say, you've got this. I just plead to your humanity and say, remember love and not fighting. Do we understand what will happen if all the gods die? Like, the whole point is Gore's going to wish the gods dead. What's the repercussions? What's the threat here? And how many are there compared to people? Yeah, I agree. It's We're not to think too much about it. Can you say it's nebulous when Gore's kneeling in front of a space entity? It remains a what-if question. If all the gods died, what would the Marvel Universe look like? But to try to tie it in, they're walking on this very shallow water, and I'm wondering, is this the place where... You went in Infinity War and Endgame to get the Soul Stone. Do you remember? Yeah. Like Thanos threw Gamora off the cliff and then he woke up in very shallow water with the Soul Stone and then the same thing happened to Hawkeye. Is this shallow water the same place where they, you know, near where eternity is? I get it. It's a symbol for baptism and rebirth that Gore is going to undergo here. But I wondered if they were tying to those movies. It's also as close as they're going to get to depicting Jesus. They're walking on water, but they wouldn't (laughs) dare throw Jesus in as just another god. Yeah, where are the Judeo-Christian gods? I Come on, be daring. (laughs) Yeah, they wouldn't dare throw him in there. Yeah, no, that would be the cutscene to end all (laughs) cutscenes. I was confused because I guess the wish is to bring the daughter back, but we were told earlier that there is no afterlife. He'll never see his daughter again. I thought he just wished to be with her again in the afterlife, but apparently that's not what it was. I can't figure out. He turns back and says she will not be alone. Is he talking about Jane? Is he talking about his daughter? He's saying she would be alone. He knows he's dying because the Necrosword is gone. He's been tied to the Necrosword, so it's killing him. And Thor is saying, you don't want revenge. You want love. Love is all anyone wants. You want your daughter. And he's thinking about it. But because he's dying, he says she'll be alone. And then Jane speaks for Thor and says she won't be alone and looks at Thor. And Thor's like, yeah, I'll be the baby daddy. Oh, she'll be alone if she comes back. If I bring her back, she won't have a father. Yes. Is what he was expressing. Yeah. And that's the moment where they agree that Thor would make a great dad. Okay. Yeah, that is out of nowhere (laughs) that Thor becomes a dad. (laughs) Desperate times. All right. Yeah, he's going to lead her into battle and let her put makeup on Mjolnir. I'm not sure he's a great dad, but he's the best one in this room. So 
This is going to offer a new dimension to Thor that he is losing Jane, but gaining something new to love. That is the daughter of this villain who is dying. He didn't wish to save himself. So I guess that's benevolence. And I really thought, I really thought either he would wish to save Jane because he saw how much Thor loved Jane or that Thor would beat him and Thor would get the wish to save Jane. That Jane died was a shock to me and I could tell my audience this woman next to me was bawling. Tears just streaking down her face, leaning forward. For Jane Foster? Well, here's the thing. Not for Jane Foster. For the idea that there is no panacea for cancer. Because in the end, there are some things that can't be waving a wand. And I mean, again, it would just cheapen everything if they did that. In order to feel the power of this, and the theme of this movie specifically, is being able to love someone knowing that they're not going to last. Yeah, they already pulled their punches so much with Korg and Valkyrie, it would be really infuriating if Jane didn't die. You're right. It's, this is not a tragedy. They're going to skip over this and focus on the fact that life is returning to normal and most people are happy. But I do think what colors the mood, it doesn't feel all sunshine and rainbows because they kept Jane Foster dead. And she's not going to go away without finally getting a tagline. But Taika's going to do a lost in translation. She's going to whisper it to Thor and we're not going to know what it is. And I do feel like Taika, at least if you're basing, you know, this opinion off of the last movie as well, he does deal with big tragedies. I mean, we saw Thor lose his homeworld in the last one. And so he does try to deal with difficult things in his conflicts, at least based off these two Thor films. It's a lot of jokes, but he does want to tr attempt to get at something heavier by the end. To watch a pure comedy wouldn't be a Marvel movie. I mean, you, you want to feel like something dramatic has transpired. And yes, the fact that he is going to have a child now is definitely different. Sweet child of mine, Guns N' Roses. I guess it was made for it. <laughs> yeah, that child's going to be adopted off by the Thor 5. <laughs> you think? Again, how committed are they to the next generation remains an open-ended question. She's going to stick around. This is played by Chris Hemsworth's daughter. I have a feeling that they're not going to get rid of her. What are you going to do with love in a, an Avengers film? Like, yeah. I guess she shoots stuff out of her eyes all of a sudden. Like, that was weird. We don't know much about this alien species. I mean, you had the villain of this alien species. You set that up. Yeah, I don't know that this means she's going to be a major player, one of the pillars of the Marvel Universe. No, she, she's going to be in that sword training class that we see at the end with Valkyrie. That's where she'll be in the next film. Yeah, I think there's a, a high level of uncertainty about what happens after the original Avengers have all gone to Valhalla. I think she's going to be in the Young Avengers movie. I didn't know there was one. But yeah, if there is, that's where you'd put her. But I think we know who the villain for the next film is going to be, right? Or at least the next Thor film. I had this one pegged. Like, even going in, I knew that Marvel Comics had their own take on Hercules. I just thought it was Maroon 5. I thought it was uh, Adam Levine when I see him here. I was just like, <laughs> oh, are they just going to pop stars? First Harry Styles, and now Adam Levine. My wife turns to me in the theater and goes, was that Brett Goldstein? And I'm like... Who's Brett Goldstein? And she's like, right. Roy effing Kent. I'm like, oh, Ted Lasso. I loved that guy in Ted Lasso. But I mean, in the microsecond that they show him <laughs> in that garb, I didn't recognize him. But my wife is now super excited for Thor 5. It is now the movie she's most looking forward to is Brett Goldstein versus Chris Hemsworth. 
I, I keep hearing great things about Ted Lasso. I have not seen it yet. So obviously, if you know that show, this would be a, like a thing to, in the same way that Harry Styles fans were swooning at the end of Eternals, you'd be happy for this. It didn't really mean much to me, but uh, I figured that they would go with Zeus in the picture. They would have to work Hercules into the future. I also predicted incorrectly that Guns N' Roses being featured here so heavily, they might actually have an original song at the end of this movie because... (laughs) Did you hear Chinese Democracy? Do you want another song from them? Actually, some of them were good. But here's here's something worth pointing out. It has been as long between Chinese Democracy and now as it was between Use Your Illusions and Chinese Democracy. (laughs) They're owed some more music, but I guess they just can't do it, so they pull up an old Dio song about Rainbow in the Dark. I mean, Axel's rocking it in that throne with his broken foot. That's the last time I saw him. (laughs) I saw them in concert after the foot healed, and he still got it. The band still has it. They rocked so hard, and this was just barely pre-COVID. Oh, they were so good. Definitely see them live if you get a chance. But if you don't get a chance, it's not like they didn't play all of their greatest hits in this damn movie. Yeah. Yeah, they're all here. Like, all the songs that I could find tolerable are in this one. (laughs) They didn't play Patience, but uh, that's because they have none in this movie. Jane had no Patience. This is the same problem that Zemeckis had with too much of the doors in Forrest Gump, you know? He just, they became too reliant on one artist. There's a lot of Guns N' Roses in here. But yes, it is going to be Dio. That takes us to our final scene, our final cameo. I did not expect to ever see Idris Elba back as Heimdall. Uh, we had his kid, so that seemed like enough of a tie. I actually predicted the Instinger would be back to the Guardians, or maybe to Wakanda. Yeah, I was waiting for them to show up one last time. We still know nothing about Black Panther. I just want to point that out. Not a frame has been shown, as far as I know. There's been a leak of some art, like the key art that they put on water bottles and things that we're going to see a million times before the movie. That has been leaked. Uh-huh. We've seen two women and one man... I'm not going to spoil who it is, but it, we've definitely seen a major player of that movie. Well, you, you've seen this. I have not seen any of this. Yeah, they're keeping that under wraps and they're just wrapping it up with Jane here. Or are they? What we see is her arrive at Valhalla, the place that heroes go when they die in battle, which feels like a very nice end. We see her with Heimdall, who we liked, who, yes, got killed in... What, Infinity War? So this beautiful ending, or then we cut from this and it says Thor will return. Which Thor are they talking about? Chris Hemsworth. (laughs) Uh, It's not even a question. I think what they're saying is that Rapu was wrong. There is an afterlife for some gods. Rapu may not be a god that gives you an afterlife. Yeah, there's afterlife for gods, not for the people that worship them. Again, we need to address this god issue. They are horrible people in this film. (laughs) You know, uh, you get to write that then. I task you with coming up with the commercial blockbuster script that can address theology. That would not be an easy task for anyone. But I have to admit, I am tired of Marvel's phase four credit scenes. They are all just introducing a new actor as a new character. If you think about it, we got Brett Goldstein here. We got Harry Styles at the end of Eternals. We got Charlie Theron at the end of Doctor Strange. We were supposed to get Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the big reveal at the end of Black Widow. What are you doing with all these characters? I really wanted 
something to tease Guardians 3 here. Guardians 3 would have made more sense. Thor 2 teased Guardians 1. I wish that they were focused a little bit more on the now and not so much the five years from now trying to get us excited about Blade having a single line of dialogue off screen. It just left me wondering, where is this all going? How many characters are you going to introduce and what are you going to do to them all? Uh, Stay tuned to your Disney Plus streaming network to watch it all go down. I mean, Arnie, the point is that the platform's gotten a whole lot bigger. They don't have to bring these people back in the next movie. They've got all of this content series. I don't know. They might as well be in She-Hulk. Who knows? What's Miss Marvel doing? I don't know. I don't watch all of this stuff, so I couldn't begin to encompass uh, where all these characters are going to land. So, Jacob, Stuart, do you recommend Thor Love and Thunder? Jacob. Yeah, I didn't love it, and it felt more like a whimper. But that, not to say it's a bad film. Like, look, my family loved it. Looked like everyone in the audience was laughing. Taika, he's good. Like, I'm looking forward to whatever he's going to do with Star Wars. Like, I'm still going to be there to see it. Like, this hasn't destroyed my preference for Taika as a director and, and being involved. I think he's good. I think the reins were taken off here, though. I think they said, you did good with Ragnarok. Do your thing. And look, I've seen Free Guy and Taika... I think he's just doing his own thing in that as the villain, and it is not good. It's not funny. That's the issue for me. You're taking some very heavy subjects with cancer, death, the existence of God, and yeah, if this was made in the 80s, it would look like Howard the Duck, and maybe it'd work better if it it looked like an (laughs) 80s production and felt like Howard the Duck with some of these jokes. My guess is no, but I'm just (laughs) going to say that about Howard the Duck. Humor is subjective, and with the idea of Ragnarok, that's a mythical thing. I I don't pay a lot of mind to how that's going to play out, but the issues they talk about in this one are very human, and they bring them up, but they don't really want to do anything with it. Like, one of the jokes that really stood out to me is they're getting ready to go after Gore, and Valkyrie's like, I got my sword, and I got my knives, and I got, is it a hand grenade? No, it's just a Bluetooth speaker. I'm like, huh? And then that Bluetooth speaker doesn't even come in as a weapon later on. Like, that would have actually paid off the joke if they would have somehow found a way to pay that off. But it's just like, here's a lot of silly moments. And the action, again, like, what what number Marvel film is this? Like, 29. Very little sticks out to me. So I'm kind of just ambivalent. It's not a bad film. Like, it it passed the time fine. But it's not one that I'm going to say you got to go out and see. Like, it's... Yeah, Ragnarok might have just been as much of a shaggy dog, but there, the writing was sharper, the jokes were sharper, the visuals looked great. Here, the only time, like, visually striking is when they're in the Shadow Realm, and you get this black and white with just hints of color. Like, it just feels like a lesser film than Ragnarok, which could still make it recommendable, but because I'm just so ambivalent, again... I chuckled a few times. My family really enjoyed it. The audience enjoyed it. So you'll probably like this one. But to me, it was a misfire. It it just didn't strike the chords. It should have been striking based on what it was attempting to do. So it's a not recommend. It's a weak one. Like, again, it's not awful. It's just I felt nothing walking out of this one. So not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, Jacob, I I think I know what you went through. And I think we do it a lot here at Now Playing. I think when you have a factory that produces content as much as Marvel does... When you experience the new installment, you're comparing it against the dozens of other movies, and it's always easier to see the litany of disappointments, or if not that, just all the connections. You're not experiencing it as a standalone event. And so I I think it takes a while for you to be able to just recognize it's a cog in a machine, and it's doing its job. If you like the Marvel Universe, 
This chapter keeps it chugging along just fine. There is no breakdown. But if you wanted something special, uh, unique, I would argue, for me, that stuff was dealing with cancer. The thing that makes this one stand out a little bit brighter than your typical assembly line production is that you have Natalie Portman dealing with something that superheroes can't fix. And even though it is given the short shrift and it is overshadowed by jokes you've already heard, it still stood with me and I thought that it mattered. And I thought all the actors were game. They came to play. I thought Taika, the jokes might be familiar, but he kept things breezy. It's under two hours. I didn't have a problem with this movie. I think it's middle of the road Marvel, probably a little bit better than that. Maybe in the top 12, 13 of what they produced, this is up in there, but it's not one of the best, not one of the worst. It's just another Marvel showcase. And as such, I would say it's a mild recommend. I came into this so jazzed, just so pro-Taika, so ready to have a Ragnarok experience where Ragnarok has become, and it's shocking to me how many Marvel movies are some of my favorite films of all time. I think we're up to six or seven Out of 30, that's a pretty good ratio. That's like 25% of your films are some of the best films I've ever seen and some of the films I love most in life, and one of them is Ragnarok. Really? Yeah. I I had no idea. Ragnarok's in my top three. Like, yeah, I I agree. Of your favorite films of all time in life? Oh, no, not of all time, of the Marvel films. I mean, that's a tall order. I get that you liked it, but... None of them are in my top 50. I'd have to really think about my top 10 movies of all time, but definitely some of the Marvel films would be in there. I mean, Winter Soldier might get in the top 100. (laughs) Winter Soldier is always vying for number one. But Ragnarok is up there too. I just love that movie so much. So I came in with expectations off the charts. I just, Mm. no movie could have lived up to the expectations I had unless I just watched Ragnarok again. So when I got here, I was actually steeled for disappointment. I was steeled that it couldn't live up and it doesn't live up. And it's not just my expectations. The movie has some pacing issues. The whole trip to Omnipotent City, especially on the second viewing, it just stuck out how useless that trip was and how suddenly... This weapon, Thunderbolt, is a MacGuffin that has never been mentioned before. It felt like Taika did rest on his laurels a little bit. I think that he came back and was strutting after the success of Ragnarok, and this was the result. Now, I know I may not have a unanimous opinion on this because Marjorie told me as we left she likes this more than Ragnarok. This is her favorite Thor film under, like, Infinity War and Endgame. But for me... It didn't live up to those highs. I think that there was a little bit, just a hair, too much reliance on humor, and Korg got annoying. It was just too much the Korg show for quite a while. I agree with you on Free Guy, Jacob. That movie, nothing was really good in it, but Taika was really bad. Nothing's good about it, but Taika's really bad in it. Wow. I guess what was good was some of the cameos at the end, but yeah, Taika was bad in that. And here, I think he's giving himself a little too much credit as Korg, but there's so much good about this movie, too. There is the Jane stuff that I, of the three of us, would be the first one to blanch at, and I really like how it was handled. I think it's a great storyline beginning to end. I wish there was actually more Jane. This is a Thor movie. She becomes a Thor, so I'd 
wished it felt like a co-starring role instead of she's definitely a supporting Thor. But I love how it's handled. I do love the seriousness of the cancer stuff and the way it is handled. Again, I think there's so many chances where they could have stepped on landmines with this movie, with the Jane stuff, and they danced it a perfect dance and none of the landmines went off. I think Christian Bale, I mean, if nothing else, it's a recommend just to see Christian Bale's performance in this makeup and giving one of the best villain performances in the MCU. You know, because I love so many MCU movies, I no longer can entirely rank them numerically because it shifts each day, but there's tiers. And there's the top tier of Marvel for me in which there's Ragnarok, Infinity War, Iron Man, No Way Home, Winter Soldier, the first Guardians of the Galaxy. Here, this is second tier. This is there with Black Panther, Spider-Man Homecoming, Spider-Man Far From Home. You know where I put this one? I would say it had the sort of pathos that Guardians 2 did. That's kind of where I pick it. Guardians 2 is my closest comparative as well, but I feel like it stuck the landing much better than Guardians 2. Guardians 2 is in my middle tier. You know, so the third tier down. Whereas this... This sticks in the second tier. I really liked it. I'll probably get to like it more on future viewings where some of the things I just become more used to instead of sticking out to me as much as problems. But I can't wait. I hope we get more Russell Crowe as Zeus. I thought that was really funny. Excited to see Hercules. I love where it's going. But more importantly for this review, I like where it went and it's a solid recommend. Yeah, we gotta admit, it's at least better than the first two Thor movies. Oh yeah, like, easily. I get that it may not reach your Ragnarok heights. For me, that's a coin flip. It's about the same, but because Ragnarok came first, I think I like that one a little bit more. But yeah, they're more or less the same movie, uh, a second helping, if you were, and definitely preferable to Dark World and that Kenneth Branagh thing. Agreed. Definitely second best Thor film out of four, and Thor's the only hero to get four films, and apparently, I mean, if we're told Thor will return, and we've got Hercules and love, we I'm guessing there will be a Thor 5. To Hemsworth, he hasn't really had any huge successes outside of Thor. He keeps working. No, he needs this franchise. Yeah, I feel like this franchise is his bread and butter, and then he it allows him to go do other stuff. Yeah, I, I think that he wears it well. I mean, again, I think that if this is not the best Thor movie, this is him at his best as Thor. I would at least feel like that. He owns it. He looks the part. And he gives full commitment. So no complaints on Chris Hemsworth from me. But were you guys shocked when in this movie there was actually a lichen? (laughs) When he's saying to the children, you're all Asgardians. A child goes, no, I'm a lichen. I did chuckle just because we've been doing Underworld and Twilight. Yes. Yes. And I'm like, oh, crap. That means next week we're doing Underworld again. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. We're awakening that. We took a break. After the third movie, the best movie, I would argue. But we're going back to finish it out with Kate Beckinsale's return as well to that one. Awakening was the fourth chapter. But if you want more Thor, we've got him this Friday. The one Thor movie we haven't covered is Adventures in Babysitting. (laughs) And yes, we're calling it a Thor movie. Will it be the best Thor film? Could be. (laughs) Let's find out uh, this Friday. If you become a patron this July, you're going to hear that exclusive. Learn all about Elizabeth Shue and her babysitter's blues. Yeah, there are so many 
shows available if you become a monthly patron of $10 or more. You can do this on Spotify. You can do this on Apple Podcasts. You can do this on Patreon. And you can do this on Podbean. $10 a month. The only real difference is on Patreon and Podbean, you get a few more podcasts. And on Patreon, you can actually get some merch if you go to the higher levels like coffee cups and t-shirts and things. But all of them have the patron-exclusive shows that we have been doing for several years, so you get dozens and dozens of bonus podcasts of all types of one-off movies, drama, action, war, comedy, and now adventures in babysitting, and in a few weeks for patrons only, nope. So you can find the details by going to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate, pick your donation channel of choice and get all of these bonus shows and we thank all of the supporters who keep us able to do this show week after week we love doing it and we love you guys for supporting us and making it possible and we do want to give a shout out to some of our patrons thank you very much to some of our biggest supporters andrew zirko david craft jay trecker t ward dean barry Elm Street 94, JRB Horticulture, A.T. White, Kendra Tenniel, Coax J, JAFS 94, Human Error Hauntings, T. Costa 2176, 23 Star, otherwise known as Pete, Criss Cross, Clark Fisher, Wes Zimmerman, Kelsey M. Howard, Dixie Delano, Jim Anders, Canyon Sanford, Rudicus, Cole, M.W. Day, Neil Mulk 78, Scott J. Berland, T. Durden, Seamus Finlayson. Thank you all for your support and others who we will give a shout out to on our next show. Thank you again. And as for the Avengers, uh, there is Black Panther 2. And now that Thor's out of the way, I feel like Marvel is streamlining. They will not show us a trailer for a movie until the previous movie is out. They're afraid of watering themselves down. After last year, they, they really were just stacked on top of one another. They do need some breathing room. But I I was shocked that we didn't get a Black Panther trailer with Thor. I thought that they would roll right from one into another. Really intrigued about that one. I, how they're going to do it, who's going to come back. I just hope the special effects artists aren't coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that climax uh, undercut. Believe it or not, I really can't wait to see what Marvel does with that and uh, their other properties when we get there in November. You know, I can't wait for a couple of weeks, San Diego Comic-Con, where we might actually find out Kevin Feige is going on stage. He may tell us the next time that the Avengers Assemble! shake into the snake that you cannot trust really dragging this out and finish the classic asgardian high one 
Thank you for listening to this episode in the now playing Avengers Retrospective Series. Lucky for us, we got the best seats in the house. Part of our Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective Series. Your work has impressed a lot of people who are much smarter than I am. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We're adjourned. We're adjourned for the day. Okay. You've been a delight. Head to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear reviews of all the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. From Iron Man to Guardians of the Galaxy to Endgame, we've reviewed every Marvel film at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Good luck keeping up. And while at our website, you can find reviews of other Marvel movies, including the Fox X-Men, Deadpool, Daredevil, and Fantastic Four films, New Line Cinema's Blade Trilogy, The Punisher movies, Sony's Spider-Man, Ghost Rider, and Venom films, and dozens more. I'm bringing the party to you. You can also find reviews of every DC Comics movie, plus hundreds of other movie reviews of series like A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Fast and the Furious, Ghostbusters, Jurassic Park, and more. Find over 1,000 in-depth movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Therefore, what I'm saying, if I'm saying anything, is welcome back. Subscribe to Now Playing on your podcast app of choice and get an all-new movie review every single week. We're going to knock their socks off. Want even more Now Playing reviews? By being a Now Playing patron or donor, you can get two reviews each week. Is it too much of a problem to ask? Because I'm, I'm... Okay, okay. I really need your help here. Now Playing is an independent podcast without any sponsors or ads. We rely on listener support to keep our show going. Are you going to step up or not? Donate to our show, and as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Supporters get perks including bonus podcasts every Friday, the ability to listen to us live, and you can even pick a movie for us to review and join us on the podcast. We need heroes. We need you. Find all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. It's a small price to pay for salvation. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when we're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. It's strange. Maybe. Who am I to judge? Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Well, multi-platform global operation. Associate produced by Jason Latham. He's pretty good at that, right? Now playing is edited by Arnie. Now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret, Cat. I'm always angry. Now playing credit narration by Brock. Are you making your voice deeper? No. <gasps> you he are. just did it again. You're the God, this man. is my voice. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated. Just stick to the official statement and soon this will all be behind you. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. You really think just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. On behalf of the Time Variance Authority, I hereby arrest you for crimes against the sacred timeline.
Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2022. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Hey, fellas. Hey, wait, where are you going? I've got so many more stories to tell. I think he uh, took apart his Hulk Hogan. That movie is yet to appear, but he will be the Hulkster at some point on Netflix soon. Oh, he's been Thor, and then he'll be Hulk? He can fight himself? Yeah, well, you know what? Uh, Hulk was never this ripped. Uh, like, yeah, this is... If you go back to those 80s, like, yeah, he, he was just orange. Are you dissing the 26-inch pythons, brother? Yes, brother. I'm saying that they're not 26 <laughs> inches, actually. Now that we've actually seen people that have accomplished that, we know he was kind of full of hot air. But... All the cosplayers are over at the Minions film, <laughs> if you know the Gentleman Minion meme that's going on. Oh my god, there were like four 13-year-olds in their version of Suits, which included like 80 <laughs> sunglasses going into Minions. I'm just like, thank god we're not reviewing Minions. <laughs> I don't want to go in that <laughs> theater. I mean, even if the kids weren't dressing up for it, I don't want to see Minions. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> Where Thor, Hemsdale, is going to have Hemsworth. to... Make, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is also a moment. <laughs> Thrown away Stormbreaker. Hemsdale. Hemsworth. 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 Damn it. <laughs> <All right. laughs>